Godly ambition seeks to exalt Jesus, not the self. Godly ambition seeks to edify or build up, equip, train, and serve his family, the church, and godly ambition seeks to evangelize or save the lost. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Hello, students, if you would turn to 1 Timothy 3. We're going to continue with um, Paul's letter to Timothy. Vance uh, Hainer once said, A leader is a person with a magnet in their heart and a compass in their head. The church in Ephesus was in deep trouble. Uh, The magnet in their heart for Jesus had begun to grow cold. They had left their first love. And the compass in their head no longer pointed the true north. Uh, the church in Ephesus was drifting away from the truth of the gospel. They began to embrace a lot of false doctrine. Remember that Paul, years before, had told the church, you're going to have troubles down the road. You're going to have members of your own congregation who are going to teach falsehood and lead members of your own church astray. He had warned them that was going to happen, and sure enough, it did happen. Paul is out of prison. Uh, It's about 63 AD. He had been in a Roman house arrest situation for about two years. He was released from prison. He and Timothy went to Ephesus. Paul left Timothy there, went up to the northern region of Greece called Macedonia. It's now its own separate country, for those of you that followed the changes in the maps, if you will. And uh, he had written a letter to Timothy about a year after he had seen him. So it's about 63 AD now. The church in Ephesus is in deep trouble, and Paul is writing Timothy, the Holy Spirit is writing through Paul, uh, to correct the situation there. And the core problem was, is that there was a comprehensive failure of leadership in this church. The false teachers, members of the own church family, were leading people away from faith alone in Christ alone. They were teaching them that you don't get to heaven by faith alone in Christ alone. You get there on good works and your Jewish history will make you right with God. Uh, We didn't cover this last week, but we had a significant failure to pray, which we talked about last week, and it appears that men in the church were failing to lead, and therefore some women were uh, usurping leadership in the church. So the Holy Spirit inspires the Apostle Paul to write this letter to tell the church in Ephesus how to behave. God wants people who belong to Him To behave like his children ought to behave. We're part of the family of God, and like all of you are good parents, and you have behavioral standards for your kids. I didn't say they followed them, but you had behavioral standards, right? And you have behavioral standards for your grandkids, and they follow them even less, right? Because you have no say-so. But nonetheless, as children of God, God has standards for how he wants us to behave in his church family. And so he writes the church at Ephesus how a church family ought to behave. And we covered last week the very first priority in the family of God is prayer. And men are to take the leadership of that discipline in the church family. 
Now in chapter 3, the first few verses, Paul tackles the topic of leadership in the local church. And most of you know that leadership, competent leadership, is crucial to the success of any organization, whether it happens to be a church, a school, a family, a nation, a political enterprise, a business, whatever it happens to be. As goes the leadership, so goes the organization because leaders always reproduce themselves, both good and bad. The conduct and character of the leadership sets the standard for how the organization is gonna believe and behave. Now, just so you know, the definition of a leader is very simple. A leader is anyone who has followers, right? Now, the problem with leadership is that sometimes you're not sure they're following you or they're chasing you, right? You're not always sure. And of course, uh, we have a joke in the political sphere that says, there's people in a parade, I need to get out in front of that parade so everybody will view me as the leader, right? So the definition of a leader is one who has followers. The essence of leadership is example, and the outcome of leadership is influence. The truth of it is, leaders influence others by their example. And I can hear some of you saying, well, Brad, this lesson doesn't really apply to me. I'm not in church leadership, so it's all good for those that are. But the reality is, every single one of you are leaders. Every single one of you influence others by your example. Amen? Of who we are and how we behave influences others. Our children, our grandchildren, our neighbors, our co-workers, family members, etc., etc. Now, the good news is for you and I, Ultimately, the organizational structure of God's family, the church, does not depend on human leadership, human skill, ability, competence, any of that. The foundational principle of church leadership is that Jesus Christ is the head of his church. Amen? And he will lead it and accomplish his purposes as he sees fit. Colossians 1.18 tells us that Jesus Christ, he is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Jesus Christ, the head of the church, the author of the church, the uh, genesis of the church, says in Matthew 16.18, he was talking to Peter and the rest of the apostles, he says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, that should give us great hope and great comfort that ultimately Jesus Christ, number one, is the head of the church, and two, he will build it and it will be unstoppable. So the whole point of church organization, which we're going to talk about today, and leadership and administration of the local church family is that Jesus Christ remains preeminent in everything. It's imperative that human leadership in the church makes sure and exalts Jesus Christ and not themselves. Now, that's the opposite of what's going on at Ephesus. It's also the opposite of what the scribes and Pharisees did. You probably remember that the scribes and Pharisees were often at odds with Jesus, and Jesus confronted them on numerous occasions, especially in Matthew 23, and he says, you scribes and Pharisees, you religious leaders, you love the places of honor. You want to sit at the highest seats. You know, at all the banquets, you sit really close to the head table. As a matter of fact, they wanted to be at the head table all the time. 
And they loved to be called rabbi, which, of course, was a really high title of respect. So Christ confronted the religious leaders uh, in the nation of Israel because they wanted the preeminence. They wanted to be large and in charge. They did not want to serve others. They wanted to be served by others. They had it completely backwards because Jesus told the disciples, as you recall, a key verse of Mark 10, 45, Jesus is speaking and he says, For even the Son of Man, he's referring to himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And the ultimate service that he rendered was laying down his very life for us. Matthew 23, 10, he gives a warning to the disciples about their tendency to be great. Remember, many, many times the disciples got into conversations among the 12 of them. Who's the greatest? Who's large and in charge, right? Your children, of course, have never had those conversations. Mom likes you best. Dad likes me best, etc., etc. But the disciples... Did They were always into it about who, yeah, I'm looking at DJ and saying she's the only child, so there was never any issue, right? No. If you're an only one, <laughs> no problem. But Jesus is warning the disciples, and he warns them more than once, but he says, do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. And the greatest among you shall be your servant. That's us. We are called to be servants. Leadership is all about servanthood. Servant leaders work to create value for the benefit of others. It's not all about us. Spiritual leadership is never about me. It's always about Jesus first, others second, and you and I at the end of that line. Now, in 1 Timothy 3, Paul is going to write a list of qualifications for church leadership. We're going to go through this this morning. It's not a list of spiritual gifts that comes in Corinthians. It's actually a character checklist. It really reflects the character of God itself, himself. This character checklist really reflects who we are on the inside, not what we do on the outside. So, you have spiritual gifts, that's what you do, you preach, you teach, you help, you serve, you encourage, all those spiritual gifts. That's not this list. This is a list of character traits. It's who you are on the inside. You know, you can be highly gifted, but you do, if you don't have godly character, your skills will be used to exalt who? Yourself, instead of Jesus Christ and God's people. So the qualities that Paul is going to list in the first half dozen verses here are really marks of Christian maturity. And there's 15 of them. And by the way, these character traits are not just for, quote, leaders. They're for all of us. All Christians are commanded to pursue this, these standards of maturity. The truth of it is none of us will ever be 100% mature. You know, I could respond to that, but how many of you have ever looked in the mirror and said, you know, yeah, what happened? That's, that's pretty good, yeah. No, we do that every morning. Every morning we look and say, what happened the last eight hours? I thought sleep was supposed to help. It doesn't help, right, right? I don't worry about getting mature. No, people around you worry about you getting mature, yeah. The, the, the key issue is not, we're never going to arrive. The key question is, are we still growing? 
Are we still growing? One of the greatest condemnations that people can ever say about you is, they're a finished tool. There's no more sharpening you can do because they don't listen anymore. That means you're dead even though you're still breathing. God always wants us to keep growing, keep growing, keep growing. If you ever get to the point in time where the Holy Spirit doesn't convict you of some sin in your life, that is trouble. Because it means that he's still working, we're just not listening, right? Maturity is what this is all about, and maturity is not automatic. Age is automatic. Old age is inevitable, but that doesn't mean you're automatically mature. Mature is not automatic. Maturity takes time. Discipline, work, growth takes diligence. And all of us should keep growing in our walk with Christ. Now, Paul is going to list these character traits because the current leadership at Ephesus was spiritually bankrupt. They did not possess these. They actually, the church there was being led astray from the truth because its leadership was not spiritually mature. So let's jump into the narrative. 1 Timothy 3, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Here's the principle. Godly leaders seek service, not status. They desire to exalt Jesus, edify or equip his family, and evangelize the lost. Godly leaders seek service, not status. They desire to exalt Jesus, edify or equip his family and evangelize the lost. Now, Paul says this is a trustworthy statement. This is a statement that is valid and has foundation and you can count on. And he says the role of a spiritual leader in a local church is a noble one. It is an aspirational one. It is a worthwhile objective of your life. It will take study and labor and dedication. And it's a worthy um, a goal for you to set. And the word aspires here, or desires, the same word, there's really two different Greek words used here. The first word for aspire means to reach out after. It means to stretch out. It means to grasp something. It's, it's something you do. It's an external action. You desire something, you reach out after it, you physically pursue it. The second word for desire used here is an inside word. It's an inner word, and it says you have a strong passion for something. You have a, almost a compulsion for something. So it's an inner desire that results in an external stretch and reach and pursuit of something. So Paul says that having an internal desire for spiritual leadership and then pursuing it, it's a worthwhile goal. It's a fine work. It's a noble task you desire to do. Desire is not a bad thing as long as you desire the right things, right? And pursuit is not a bad thing or seeking that as long as you seek them in the right way. Most of the time when we think of ambition, the word ambition, we go, well, most ambitious people are selfish, right? It's all about me, 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 me. And so the word ambition gets a, a bad rap. Godly ambition seeks to do three things. We just talked about them. Godly ambition seeks to exalt Jesus, not the self. Godly ambition seeks to edify or build up, equip, train, 
and serve his family, the church, and godly ambitious seeks to evangelize or save the lost. See, biblical ambition is God-centered and other-centered, not self-centered. Selfish ambition is all about me. So ambition is a good thing. Paul says it's a fine work you desire to do, providing your motives are correct and you pursue it in a godly fashion. The one word that is always underestimated here, it says, is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine, what's the word? Fine work. Work means what? Sweat, labor, sacrifice. Spiritual leadership requires sacrificial labor. I want you to know that your leadership team at Valley Baptist Church these folks are diligent. They are very hardworking. They work an enormous number of hours day and night. I know most of them, and I will tell you, they're very disciplined, diligent people, and it is not easy. Spiritual leadership is not about laziness. It's about sacrifice. It's an eternally serious calling to be responsible for the spiritual maturity and well-being of those in the church family. And you know the pastoral team here, and they take that very, very seriously. And most of us have been the recipients of the diligent, prayerful, careful handling of that responsibility. And I'm exceedingly grateful for the leadership team that God has brought together here. So spiritual leadership is about service. It's not about status. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus' family, and it's about the lost. It's never about the self. So there are a number of words that are used in the Bible to describe church leadership, and you'll see these used throughout the New Testament. They use the word apostle, apostle. Apostle is a messenger who is sent with a message under the authority of the one who sends them. And Paul describes himself often as an apostle. And the 12 disciples minus Judas were also apostles, right? And that office, by the way, was limited to those 12 people. There's no apostles today. Another word that's often used is pastor. Pastor literally translates herdsman or shepherd. Shepherd is a very common translation for pastor. And that describes the caring that the shepherd has for their flock. And we have a whole, what we call a pastoral team here, pastors, who shepherd and care for the flock. Another word that you'll see often used in Paul's writings is the word elder. Elder describing a church leader, and the Greek there is presbyterios. It, it literally means old, old man. Yeah, it, it, it implies someone with age and wisdom and maturity of someone who fulfills that role. Later in this chapter, we're not going to get to it this morning, but they talk about deacon, diakonos. It's one who executes the commands of another. Uh, a deacon is a servant. A deacon is in a master-servant relationship. By the word, a way the way we see the word minister, minister literally means servant. So when you say this is a minister of the gospel or a minister of education, you know, like a, a foreign emissary, I'm the minister of, of, of this or that. It means I'm the servant who serves in that particular role. Another word that uh, actually Paul translates here is bishop. Episcopal. It, it literally means over plus to see. So you oversee. A bishop oversees. And that's actually the word that Paul uses here. The word 
overseer, one who renders oversight. It, it really describes the responsibility of rule in a local congregation. And, and, and you might know there's various denominations that actually have adopted these words for their whole denominational structure. You've heard of Presbyterians, right? So, yeah, yeah, you've heard of Presbyterians. They have elder boards, right? And they believe in elder board rule, that they get that right from this word, Presbyterios. And you've heard of Episcopalians, right? They have bishop structures. The word episcopal means bishop, episcope, overseer, etc. And you've heard of apostolic churches, right? Okay. So denominations will use these words and apply them in various uh, forms in their governance structures. So Paul is really at the summary of verse 1 is affirming that desiring to serve God and God's family is a noble ambition. And now he's going to give us the character traits that are required for leadership in God's family. And he begins with verse 2 with the global uh, character trait that really oversees everything else. And it says in verse 2, an overseer then must be above reproach. I don't know what you have in your translation. You might have the word blameless, right? So either of those words. And here's the principle. Spiritual maturity is mandatory for those who oversee God's people. Spiritual maturity is mandatory for those who oversee God's people. And, and, and the word really here that he translates blameless literally means not seized upon, not able to be held. And it literally designates that someone who lives their life in such a way that an adversary has nothing that they can seize on to make a charge against them. When someone's living a blameless life, it doesn't mean they're perfect. It means that no one can make a valid accusation of wrongdoing. It's, it's, there's no obvious, observable sin in their life. It doesn't mean they're perfect. It just means that they're living a life that is in accordance with God's word. It means that they obey God's word, not perfectly, but they have a track record of obeying God's word in thought and word and deed. It means they're not living a double life. It means they're not um, hypocrites. It certainly does not imply moral perfection because only Jesus was morally perfect. But it means there's no obvious behavior, thought, word, and deed that you could lay a charge against them saying, if I was going to court, I could make a claim, and here's the evidence, right? Does that make sense? Say yes. Let me know that I'm, even if I'm not. So, <laughs> Rob, that was you. You inspired that. So, it's not perfection that's required, but it is maturity and maturing as we go. So this is the overarching character quality that describes a godly church leader is living a blameless life. The rest of these character qualifications elaborate, really, or flesh out what it means to be blameless or spiritually mature. And the very first one listed is the husband of one wife. Literally, the Greek translates a one-woman man or a one-wife husband. And I can hear some of you go, well, duh, right? This qualification limits rulership in the church to men. 
It has nothing to do with the value of men and women. It has nothing to do with the salvation of men and women. It has nothing to do with the productivity of men or women. This is simply Jesus Christ, the head of his church, communicating his orders about how he wants his church to operate. So this is a matter of roles, not necessarily values. Now, there are four major views regarding this phrase, the husband of one wife. What does that mean? Some means that it requires elders to be married. Some understand that it means that the elders must be married only once. Only once. Others view it to mean that the elder must be monogamous, not polygamous. And finally, some understand that this means commanding the married elder that they must be a moral husband. The truth of it is, all of those miss the mark because this qualification really has nothing to do with marital status. It has everything to do with moral and sexual purity, not whether you're married or single. It's first on the list because this arena of life has been the single biggest cause of ministry failure in the church from time immemorial. Moral failure, sexual failure, has taken more men out of biblical leadership in the church of Jesus Christ than any other character law. Now, this requirement does not disqualify single men from church leadership because Jesus, Paul, nor Timothy were married. So if that was the case, none of them would qualify. It certainly doesn't refer to polygamy because polygamists wouldn't even be church members, let alone church leaders. So clearly it doesn't matter polygamy. That was already on, on, on the, the do not pass go list. It doesn't apply to remarriage after death because Scripture clearly allows widows and widowers to remarry. Not a problem. And it doesn't even primarily refer to marriage after divorce because the Bible does permit divorce in cases of marital infidelity and allows for biblical remarriage in no particular case. However, it does command moral and sexual purity. So if married, this male leader must be a one-woman man. He has to be completely committed to his wife. He has to have eyes for her. He has to be devoted to her alone in his affections and his passion. He's required to discipline his thought life as well as behavior life. So if the man is married, the central idea of this qualification for leadership in God's family is that he has to have a healthy marriage. However, regardless of marital status, leaders of God's family and members of God's family, which means you and me as well, are required to be morally and sexually pure. We cannot be, any of us, enslaved to sexual lust, pornography, and so on. Now, it's important to understand that these character traits, when you get done with this list, if you're honest, you should be tired. You should look at this list and go, who can measure up? To this list. And the truth of it is, none of us are fully measure up to this list. That's one of the reasons why at the very beginning I said it's really, really important to understand that Jesus Christ is the head of his church and he will accomplish his work and he will do it through very flawed people. And we all qualify on that metric. So the character traits that Paul lists here refer to their present spiritual status. In other words, what's the present spiritual status of this church leader? Because every one of us has sins in our past. Amen? Every one of those sins has been forgiven, and Jesus Christ has not only forgiven, he's forgotten. However, 
spiritual maturity does imply a history, a time frame of consistent Christian living. Someone who's being habitually overcome by sin in their life should not be taking on additional spiritual responsibilities for the church at large. They need to get their own house in order, right? I mean, first things first. Leaders in God's family need to have an extended track record of moral and sexual purity. It doesn't mean perfection. So when we're going to go through these character traits, this happens to be number one on the list, it doesn't mean perfection, but it does mean a history of consistent obedience. So that's number one. Next is the word temperate. Leader must be temperate. This means sober, uh, vigilant, clear-headed, well-balanced, able to make sound judgments. It describes a man who has accurate spiritual discernment in a very morally hostile world. It means they can discern when something uh, is headed in the right direction or the wrong direction. This temperate male leader is not asleep at the wheel, but they're alert and they're diligent, and they take seriously their calling and they properly prioritize their life. Next is the word prudent. And prudent here translates as literally sensible, self-controlled, sober-minded, of sound mind, curbing one's desires. Here's one, does not act on impulse, is self-controlled. And I was doing really well until you got to the is self-controlled because that is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Yes, it is the final fruit of the Spirit, uh, the last one on the list, and a prudent person is one who is self-controlled. Not perfectly self-controlled, but has a history of discipline and diligence in that regard. They don't live by their feelings. They live by obedience to God's Word. This biblical leader that's prudent is disciplined and orders their priorities, and they are serious about spiritual matters. They don't take spiritual things casually. They take them extremely seriously. And I think one of the things that um, it's terribly easy to be casual in our walk with Jesus. It truly is, because Jesus is our Savior. He's also our best friend. And it's terribly easy just to, especially in our prayer life, to just talk without thinking. Tom, I've got to call you out on this. I always appreciate when Tom leads us in prayer. He has five, six, seven, eight seconds of what? Silence. It makes you aware that you're coming into the presence of God. And Scripture says, when you come into God's presence, remember, God is in heaven, you are on earth, therefore, let your words be few. That doesn't mean you shouldn't use words. It says, be thinking about what you're saying, because you're talking to Almighty God. He wants to hear us. He invites us. He commands us to pray. But he says, be serious about this. That's what the word prudent means. Next is the word respectable. This is of good behavior, orderly, dignified, decent, modest, discreet. And I can hear you going, I don't know anybody like that. None of my friends behave like that, Brad. Yeah, well, Christian leaders are required to live well-ordered lives in every area of their life. 
And this word respectable, the Greek word is cosmos. And cosmos means order. We call the universe the cosmos. Carl Sagan said the cosmos is the only thing that has been or ever will be, which of course is very wrong-headed because how did all this wonderfully intricate universe come into being if it wasn't by an infinitely wise and infinitely powerful creator? So cosmos means order. And so a person who is respectable is one who brings order into situations. And we get our word cosmetic from this. When you apply cosmetics to your hair and face, you're bringing order out of chaos. <laughs> and when you wake up in the morning, it is a little chaotic, right? I mean... My father had a butch haircut his entire life. The older I get, the more I'm saying, smart man, there wasn't much to worry about. All right? You get up in the morning, there was nothing to worry about. So the, the point here is spiritual leaders are not to lead chaotic, disorganized lives. They are to live organized, orderly lives. The point is, if you can't effectively manage yourself, how can you manage the church? He says, you have to manage yourself. You have to bring order out of your own life first. Next word is hospitable. And the word hospitable means a lover of strangers. A lover of strangers. So this godly leader is quick to open his heart and his home to others and likes to meet new people. He's able to make them feel relaxed and welcome, takes the initiative to reach out to strangers. And we go, well... Brad, most people are way overrated. I don't need to get to know them that much. I mean, come on. This was really, really, really important in the first century church because hotels were non-existent. You didn't have a Hampton Inn on the street corner. You could put somebody up. When people came through town, they stayed in homes, your home. And if you were a Christian leader, hospitality was not just a question of convenience. There might have been no other place to stay. And if you were going to have an influence on them for Jesus Christ, having them into your home became not a small thing. So travelers and visitors stayed in homes at that point. But even today, most people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So this word hospitable says, do they feel the love? Do they feel the love? Then they're going to be interested in your Jesus. Next. Able to teach. This is the only quality on this list that's related to ability or giftedness, not necessarily a character trait. This is a skill set. What it basically says is the church leader must know Scripture well enough to effectively teach sound doctrine and refute error without being antagonistic or quarrelsome. It's the last phrase that's tough. Because normally when we start talking about truth and religion and what we believe and I'm right and you're an idiot and so on and so forth, things can get really, really heated. And anytime you're talking about fundamental truth, we get that. That's why in polite company we say, well, don't talk about religion and politics because it's very difficult to remain open and friendly and kind and available 30, 40 years ago, I remember 
watching Jerry Falwell on television, and he was just being hammered. And he had this very gentle smile on his face, and he's talking, and I'm thinking, man, I'd have gotten the baseball bat out a long time ago. But it was interesting. That's almost supernatural. When you're under attack and you can be talking about matters of life and death, and another person who's really impacting me, this is James Dobson, and you can remain loving even when you're talking to people who, you, who violently disagree with you, that is one of the things able to teach us not just the truth, it's how you teach the truth. But this able to teach uh, obviously requires a desire to study God's word so that they will know it well enough to explain it and defend it. And actually teaching the truth of God's word is the primary job description for the pastor, teacher, leader. It implies a great deal of prayer before speaking, as well as a requirement for personal application of the truth to their own lives. Uh, and quite frankly, one of the hardest things that Brad does here is not teach. It's obeying what comes out of my mouth. Because the Holy Spirit brings conviction to me routinely. Brad, you said that on Sunday. Obey it. Oh, I wish I hadn't said that. No, that's not true. The truth of God's word stands forever and our lives are always going to have a gap between truth, but we should strive and continually surrender ourselves to the Lord so that we will be working on obeying the truth that we teach and that we hear at that point in time. So Paul is saying that the primary leadership in the church from a human perspective lies with the teachers, not with the administrators, not with the youth pastors, not with the music leaders, with the teachers, because the authority of God's word is the authority upon which we act. So the gift of teaching, by the way, is not limited to large groups. You can have very effective, hugely effective teachers in small groups. You can have hugely effective teachers one-to-one -one in discipleship setting. Very good teachers. So it doesn't have to necessarily be a large group, but this is a skill that Paul says must be an epidemic or endemic to church leaders because defending the truth, knowing the truth and being able to present it and defend it is imperative. Verse 3, not addicted to wine, not given to drunkenness. This means not a brawler, not a playboy, not a drunkard. By the way, there's no biblical prohibition against alcohol per se, but there are severe prohibitions against drunkenness. Drunkenness is a sin. Galatians 5.21 says it's one of the deeds of the flesh. It's certainly not one of the fruits of the Spirit. And by the way, this prohibition is rather global. It doesn't just apply to alcohol. It means that church leaders are not to be mastered by any destructive addiction. Tobacco, drugs, pornography, gambling, or in our particular community, food. Many Christians don't abuse alcohol. Many Christians do abuse food. That's reality. When you go overseas, and I have friends that are overseas, you don't see gluttony overseas because food's hard to come by. In some cases, it's very expensive. In the United States, food is abundant and easy, and it's terribly easy to abuse food. And that's every area of our life has to be disciplined. So alcohol is one list, but any destructive addiction is prohibited. For Ephesians 5.18, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, 
That's the opposite of focus. That's dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So we are commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit, who is to guide our lives, direct our lives, and lead us. I didn't make this as a principle, but I think it's a pretty good one. Anything that interferes with your ability to hear and obey the Holy Spirit is a sin. Anything that interferes with your ability to hear and obey the Holy Spirit is a sin and has to be rejected. So things that don't bother you may be lethal for my ability to hear and obey the Holy Spirit. For me, it is sin. It may not be for you. So that's not, I'm not building the list here for everybody to apply to. But if it gets in the way of you listening to and obeying the Holy Spirit, it's got to go because it is cutting off your source of life. Leaders especially have to avoid being under the influence of anything that can harm their good judgment. Solomon's mother's name was Bathsheba, and uh, she is thought to have counseled her son with this particular proverb when he was a young man, and apparently Solomon's nickname was Lemuel. So in Proverbs 31, verse 4, this is Solomon's mother, Bathsheba, giving him advice probably when he was a teenager. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to, destroy, to desire strong drink. For they will drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of the afflicted. Give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to him whose life is bitter. I was like, we'll use strong drink as an anesthetic when you're on hospice for pain management. That's when strong drink's appropriate. So the higher you go up the ladder in terms of authority and leadership, the fewer things you can do. The more leadership you assume, the fewer things you can do. You have no idea how constrained Pastor Rogers' life is. By choice. And it brings him joy. But it requires enormous discipline. There's a lot of things that you and I are free to do. He's not free to do. And the further you go up in leadership, the fewer things you can do. I really got that word picture back in 2001 when they were talking about climbing Mount Everest. When you climb Mount Everest, you don't take the truck and the camel and your household and sink and everything else with you because at 26, 7,000, 8,000 feet, the air gets pretty thin. So there's these base camps. First base camp's about 21,000 feet, then they have four separate camps at 23, 25. The last one's about 27,000 feet and they make the final dash to the top. Here's the rule. The higher you go on the mountain, the less stuff you get to take. And the last dash to the top, you basically take oxygen and water. And that's it. So you got all this stuff at the base camp, and the higher you go to the mountain, the less you take. So you want to go up, you have to give up. And there are some people who will not grow in their Christian faith because they're not willing to give up what Jesus says. Lay it down. I have more for you. I have better for you. No, Lord, I got to hang on to my blah, 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 fill in the blanks. You want to go up? You have to give up. But you get to the top of the mountain. Right? I don't know what the Holy Spirit's talking to you about, but that message is what caused me to give up alcohol completely. It says, if you want to mature, Brad, for you, the next step is 
This has to go. I don't know what the Holy Spirit's telling you. Don't, don't listen to Brad's story. You listen to what the Holy Spirit says. So whether the Christian drinks ultimately or smokes or whatever, it's a matter of ultimately personal conscience before God, not somebody else. However, Paul says all Christian behavior should be evaluated not by your personal freedom, but by how your behavior impacts the faith of another Christian. 1 Corinthians 8. But take care that this liberty of yours, whatever it is, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Therefore, verse 13, if food or anything else causes my brother or sister to stumble, I will never eat meat again. He's talking about food sacrificed idols, so that I will not cause my brother or sister to stumble. Our personal liberties are to be limited by love for each other because your spiritual well-being is far more important than my freedom. Next, pugnacious. Uh, this means not violent. Someone who keeps their anger under control, not a striker, not a giver of blows, does not hit people either physically or verbally. This is a man who is self-controlled and reacts to situations calmly and gently. By the way, Physical violence or verbal violence is not on the menu of behavioral options for Christian leaders. In our culture, physical violence and verbal violence are epidemic. Amen? You've got road rage leading to murder. You've got social media verbal violence that is atrocious. The things people will say to and about each other Computer to computer, phone to phone, device to device is staggering. Not how Christian leaders are supposed to behave. No verbal violence, no physical violence, self-control. In contrast to that, but gentle, not violent, but gentle, patient, considerate, gracious, does not demand his own rights, quick to forgive, does not hold a grudge. How many of you know people who carry grudges? How many of you know keep a list, at least a mental list, of people that have wronged them? And man, they can dredge that up like that, right? Usually those people are miserable, unhappy, weighed down. Carrying a grudge is like swimming with an anchor. Sooner or later it's going to drag you under. You know, when I was in life-saving school, one of the things they made you do is tread water and carry a brick. Not a, not a real brick, I mean a 30-pound rubber brick. And you're supposed to tread water with your legs and you had to pass this brick around the circle. Well, you try that long enough, that brick's going to take you under. That's what grudges will do. They're weights and they will drag you under and drown you. Let it go. Forgiveness not only frees others, it frees you, right? Peaceable. It means uncontentious, not quarrelsome, not a fighter. It's someone who promotes unity, not division in God's family. The word here, the Greek word is a macho. And it's the opposite of our slang term, macho. Macho describes someone who's what? Got to prove how tough they are, usually through fighting and conflict. A macho means without conflict. It means a peacemaker, not a brawler. Spiritual leaders should not be spiritual bullies. They should not have an anger management problem. They shouldn't have a chip on their shoulder. How many of you know people that have a nose for conflict? I mean, they can find a fight or create a fight like that. They're really not happy unless they're in a battle over something. And you know who loves those kind of people? Attorneys. 
I'm serious. Someone who's angry all the time has always got a lawsuit going on with somebody. That's part of the curse of anger. Jesus says spiritual leaders should have a nose for peace. They should be people who find ways to make peace. Next, free from the love of money. They're not covetous. They're not a lover of money. By the way, money's not the problem. Possession of money's not the problem. It's the attitude toward money. It's the love of money. Poor people can love money as much as rich people. Jesus said you can't serve God and money. You have to choose. Clearly, clearly, you serve God. You love God. You use money. So the mature leader loves God, serves people, and then uses money, not the other way around. The false teacher is always characterized by covetousness and greed, not the follower of Jesus. Spiritual maturity is always characterized by contentment with whatever God chooses to provide. And it doesn't mean irresponsibility. I've had people say, well, we're just going to trust Jesus. I said, well, no, you might want to use the budget. You might want to follow the budget. Trusting Jesus is good, but he did give you a brain, and he did say, write down what you, before you spend it, right? That's called responsibility. Prayerful, prudent stewardship of all the resources God has entrusted you. Someone who loves money will use people. Someone who loves people will use money. There is a big difference. Such people who love money are not to be entrusted with leadership in God's family. Verse 4, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Good question. Here's the principle. Effectively leading your own family is a prerequisite to leading God's family. You need to be able to manage your own house well. It doesn't mean perfect. It means well. It means your family members will submit to this individual's leadership out of respect for their character. Even when they're disciplining their children, they should do it with dignity and respect because if they abuse their own children at home, they'll certainly abuse God's children at work. And every church leader has a greater priority than their ministry at church. You know what that is? Their ministry at home. They need to be taking care of their spouse and their kids. <clears throat> and by the way, there's no quality time with your spouse or your kids without quantity time with your spouse or your kids. Can't do it five minutes a day. It takes time, significant time. So spiritual leadership in the home is the training ground for spiritual leadership in God's family. Next, number six, verse six, and not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation occurred by the devil. Here's the principle. Premature promotion often leads to pride, but testing over time can teach humility, which is essential for spiritual leadership. Premature promotion often leads to pride, but testing over time can lead to humility, which is essential for spiritual leadership. It takes time to mature. I wish you could have an instant maturity, but it doesn't. You can cram for a final exam, but you can't cram when you're planting a garden. You can study all night for the test, but you can't plant spinach seeds the night before if you want the salad the next day. It takes time. You know, if you want an oak tree to grow to maturity, it can take centuries. And for a Christian to grow to maturity, it takes time to learn how to think and act like Jesus. Paul says if you promote an immature believer into a position of authority, you're probably going to have spiritual pride. And the word conceit here literally means puffed up or filled with smoke. And you know what happens when smoke gets in your eyes? You can't see clearly, right? 
So pride always puts self in the center. Clint Blanchard has a line that says, ego stands for edging God out. How true. So humility is imperative in God's sight, and humility is not automatic. Unfortunately, most of us have learned humility through trials and tribulations and troubles and pain and suffering and disappointments and heartbreaks and all those things. And Satan's, of course, great pride, great sin was pride, and it resulted from his expulsion from heaven and his ultimate destiny in the lake of fire. So Paul says, don't promote somebody prematurely because you're setting them up for a fall. Human leaders in God's family have to be seasoned, and we get seasoned usually through trials and troubles. That's how it generally works. And if they remain humble and faithful, they qualify to shepherd God's flock. Number seven, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall under reproach and the snare of the devil. Here's the principle. Live such an exemplary life so that even those who reject what you believe still respect how you behave. I didn't say this was easy, but it's imperative. Live such an exemplary life so that even those who reject what you believe still respect how you behave. Paul says the unchurched outside world should recognize this man as a person of integrity. He should conduct himself in an honest, upright manner that brings credit to the name of Jesus, not discredit. No one should be able to accuse a Christian leader of hypocrisy. Because not only does he tell people about Jesus, he lives like Jesus lived. Satan loves to use hypocrisy in the church to embarrass, discredit the gospel, and bring down human leadership. So Paul says, live in such a way that even the outside who don't follow Jesus look at your life and are convicted by it. 1 Peter 2.12. Peter's writing and he says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So the world's going to oppose you and me because our lifestyle convicts them of sin. By the way, when you live a holy life, it's going to bring conviction to people that are living a sinful life. That's part of the turf. Did the same with Jesus. However, Peter says, don't give people a legitimate reason to slander you by behaving badly. Don't behave like them, behave like Jesus. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5, 16? Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may what? See your good works and glorify your fathers in heaven. So for us, the call is very simple. Live a life that can only be explained because Jesus lives in you. At your funeral, they should say, you cannot explain this life without Jesus Christ. This life makes no sense without the presence of the living God. That's Peter's comment. Okay, I know we've covered a lot of territory. I uh, apologize for moving so quickly, but we had a lot of meat on the table to process. So let me give you a summary, and Tom will come up and lead us in prayer and praise. Number one, <clears throat> godly leaders seek service not status. That's a motivation. They desire to exalt Jesus, edify his family, and evangelize the lost. 
Number two, spiritual maturity is mandatory for those who oversee God's people. Effectively leading your own family is a prerequisite for leading God's family. <clears throat> Premature promotion often leads to pride, but testing over time can teach humility, which is essential for spiritual leadership. And lastly, live such an exemplary life so that even those who reject what you believe still respect how you behave. Thanks for listening. I know this was a lot to digest. I love you all. And now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.